0: hi and welcome to delta dialogue in this podcast we talk about open data open medical data and ai from above and beyond and explore its implications to our world on the episode of our series on open medical data we discuss healthcare open medical data and ai i'm your host emir mustafa i am joined today by my co-host and commentator david wood and our guest speaker dr kate tulenko Kate is a globally recognized expert in health workforce and health systems strengthening. She founded Corvus Health in response to the lack of full service health workforce companies that could address health workforce challenges throughout the health worker life cycle. Previously, Kate served as Vice President Health Systems Innovation for IntraHealth International, as Director of Capacity Plus, the US Agency for International Development's flagship Global Health Workforce Project, and as coordinator of World Bank's Africa Health Workforce Program. Hi, Kate. We've talked about open medical data and also about uh, the, the the specifics inside healthcare that that you know that can be modified or or assisted with AI. Uh, however, I wanted to also ask that about open medical data can pro- uh, provide insights into health worker demographics, skill sets, and distribution. Uh, so, how does Corvus Health leverage open medical data to inform its strategies and decision-making processes? And uh, on top of this, if open medical data was uh, performing as it should uh, for, let's say, in the United States, what would be the, um, the difference in efficiency between the, between the two scenarios in now and hopefully the future?
1: Yeah, I'll say unfortunately, currently there's not enough um, open medical data for us to use it a, a great deal, um, and the, the a lot of the problems are more about access or or politics. I'll just give you an example that um, when the Obama administration uh, passed the Affordable Care Act, which you know gave 40, 000, uh, 40 million uh, additional people in the U.S. Um, access to uh, insurance and health care. They also uh, set up a um, national health workforce council. This council has never been funded or convened, so uh, you know we're really kind of at, at, at a loss of that sort of national level, you know, guidance about the, the health workforce. And um, you know, a lot of open medical data that's out there is about patients and not about the team that helped take care of them. Um, that that data is you know usually found in you know HR files and is is not normally considered um, open medical um, data. You know certainly if we had access to to more data, you know particularly on you know what type of teams did did what work, we could get a better understanding of, of productivity. For example, a surgeon who has a nurse practitioner do all their, you know, initial physical exams and, and all the follow-up visits, you know, how productive are they able to, you know, and to fill out all the paperwork, how productive are they able to be versus, you know, a surgeon who, who has to do all that herself, who has to do the physical exams herself, who has to do all that paperwork uh, herself. Because what we see is often a resistance from health systems. They say, okay, I'm paying the surgeon $200,000 and you're wanting me now to hire an NP at you know maybe eighty or a hundred thousand dollars that's that's a higher cost for me and, and not understanding or believing that the surgeon will now be more productive and will be able to see more patients and that in, in fact you know it, it will all sort of pay for itself both in, in in productivity as well as as profitability and if we had more open data you know about you know patients patient outcomes and the team that produced that sort of like the production factor, as economists would say, if we had more of that data, we definitely, I think, could um, uh, be more persuasive in the, in the case to, to help health systems redesign their teams.
0: Okay, and in your opinion, like, what are the steps that actually need to be taken to be able to um, uh, make the situation better in terms also on, on private sector and from the government's perspective? Yeah,
1: certainly so what I always tell regulators is I say, you're the boss, you know, you're, you're the parent. If, if you want data, you mandate that uh, both the public and the private sector has to to send that data to you. Uh, and, um, you know, enforcement is another thing, uh, but they you know, regulators certainly have the power to to do that. Um, Often they don't want to for political reasons or, uh, you know, they uh, think it will be too difficult from an enforcement um, point of view. But certainly every single regulator has the power to require that that de-identified data be provided.
0: Okay, and yeah, so basically the average, actually what we have to do is that the average person needs to kind of insist on their local politician to 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 push for for improvement in in terms of policy making
1: yeah and that's that might be a hard sell because there's a, you know there's a lot of suspicion about what's going to be done with medical data how is it going to be misused we also need to most countries need to dramatically strengthen the penalties for mis um, misusing data for you know either blackmailing people or um, committing insurance fraud uh, with uh, with stolen medical data. Uh, and that I think will give you know the average patients more confidence in in providing their data.
2: I think we should talk more about this lack of trust issue because it seems to be particularly significant. That uh, even some politicians, the reason they're not asking for data to be collected is because they're playing into this public perception of, well, we can't trust these guys anyway. So is the lack of trust also a global thing or are there other parts of the world where there is more trust in the health authorities and therefore improvements in productivity, improvements in the organization?
1: Certainly varies by uh, country and, and culture. But certainly, um, you know, in, in many countries, the, uh, the mistrust came from, uh, from negative experience. You may have heard of the, um, the Tuskegee syphilis studies where peop, uh, where a group of researchers basically followed African Americans uh, who had syphilis and never told them they had syphilis, even though it was completely treatable uh, in sort of the ethics around that. Or you know the the person who historically had been considered the the father of obgyn in the us um, experimented on um, black enslaved women without any type of anesthesia so or in the us you know um there was a history of um you know uh performing sterilization surgeries on uh, people with in- intellectual deficits without their consent or without their family's consent so with a history like this it makes it very difficult uh, to get people to, to trust the health system, and then of course there's now this political layer uh, on top of it. Um, you know, in in a number of different countries, um, and it's interesting in that I think a lot of people thought that um, the internet would help people, you know, get access to information and would sort of solve a lot of our problems. But instead, what it's done is give people access to misinformation. And um, you know, even before COVID, you know, WHO had recognized um, anti-vaccination or vac- what they call vaccine hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy as one of the top ten threats to go- global health. And my guess is when they redo that that list, they're going to add vaccine hesitancy and misinformation. Uh, before the um, the COVID outbreak and I believe it was um, Samoa. They had a, um, oh, what was it? It it wasn't a polio outbreak. It was measles. They had a measles outbreak. And there was one um, local leader who was giving out misinformation, giving out misinformation, had been warned multiple times. Eventually, he was arrested, convicted, and jailed for giving misinformation about uh, measles and the measles vaccine. So, you, you know... Uh, unfortunately, this type of mistrust, and you know, I think that maybe often people who give out misinformation they get a feeling of self-importance, and people are looking up to them, uh, you know, as as sources of medical information. And it, it's really very difficult to, to to counter that, especially when also you know people see folks in the medical establishment as well, you know, they're you know, metropolitan or urban, we're rural. Um, you know there may be a, a certain caste or color and, and we're different or they're wealthy and, and we're you know middle class or where we're poor so there're all these dividing lines which is why as I said before, it's so important to, you know, recruit and train people locally. And, you know, certainly in the, in the US and elsewhere, we, during COVID, we had more success where there were local community workers, or people who, you know, like maybe my local community worker, you know, I grew up with her, I you know, went to school with her, you know, I, I, I trust her, she speaks my local language. Um, you know, one of the tales that was told during one of the, the Marburg um, outbreaks, uh, Marburg's a relative of Ebola, Um, in Africa is when the health workers came in their, their space suits, the locals did not know there were people in there. They didn't really understand that those were people. They were thinking maybe they were robots or ghosts and, and just having that cultural sensitivity or the fact that, um, you know, during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, that the body bags that were being used were black and they looked like trash bags. And so you see your loved one being put basically in a trash bag. And so they, through, you know, talking with the local healthcare workers and understanding, especially in certain, certain areas that, that were Muslim or even in, in Christian areas, going with a white bag that looked more like a traditional shroud, you know, would be more, more acceptable. So, you know, having those local health workers gives you that that local context and and helps build that trust.
2: There seems to be many angles on this mistrust in terms of people who spread misinformation. I've seen an analysis that people often start off trying to share good information and then on their show, on their podcast, occasionally they may have somebody who has a more controversial view. And suddenly they get lots more viewers, suddenly they get lots more hits. So this inclines them to bring back similar people who have uh, controversial views. And then they can become quite financially uh, rewarded for having these people on. And in order to tell themselves it's okay to bring on these controversial figures, they have to convince themselves Well, there's summing in the story. And so there's a sad progression, a misalignment of objectives which lead people who to start off, we would have given good information nine days out of 10, end up giving bad information nine days out of 10. I, I think this is a complex issue and it needs attention.
1: Yeah. yeah you're spot on with that. Anger and outrage builds audiences. Uh, you know, And even Facebook has had to deal with this because apparently if you would put like an angry face as a response, something would get put higher than if you just put a thumbs up. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's a real challenge, and there are all types of snake oil salesmen. I just saw something uh, in the U.S. that someone was um, selling a, a cream that supposedly protects you from five G. You know the the five G cell phone signal, and, and and you know a lot of these rumors they they start with a like a kernel of of truth, like you know maybe um you know there's a a woman who who had a miscarriage after receiving the COVID vaccination. So that was true. And, and maybe when they, you know, when they looked at the fetus, oh, well, the, the, the fetus had had some, you know, a genetic disorder that that leads to miscarriages. But, but that doesn't matter to these folks. All they know is a woman who had the COVID vaccine had a miscarriage, and that's what gets reported. Um, or, or not even looking at, I think there's also a misunderstanding of risk. That's why people are more afraid to, you know, fly on an airplane than they are to get on the, the local highway, even though from a mile traveled, you know, all of us are much, much more likely to, to be injured or in an accident in a car than, than on a plane. It's just this perception of risk. And, you know, I, I remember talking to a, a childhood friend of mine who, who has um, gone a bit on the, on the deep end um, with, with misinformation. And she pointed to, you know, someone who had had a vaccine and saying, well, this is awful. This person had a vaccine injury. And I said, you have to look at the, the whole of it. So maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand people have a vaccine injury, but we've saved the lives of a million people Um, through the vaccine, and and I think a lot of people think in absolute terms, and all they can think about is that one person who was injured and they know it, then the, the million people who were protected, whose lives were literally saved but they do not know it. Uh, that's, the, that's the big challenge with public health is you don't know when something was prevented, but you know when there was a bad outcome. And these are, I mean, these are, it's very sophisticated, very complex, the mathematics of it. Uh, and and for, for a lot of people, it, it just, um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult uh, to, to understand.
0: Uh, the ethical use of AI in uh, healthcare is, uh, is crucial uh what i'm curious about is how does corvus health working you know with with different companies and 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 governments ensure the responsible and ethical use of ai and open medical data in its solutions uh especially you know particularly in terms of privacy security and bias mitigation
1: you know really now it's mainly a point of of compliance um whether it's with um you know, regulations, which you can say is the floor, which is the minimum, or compliance with, um, with sort of additional um, guidelines. Uh, for example, we're signatories to, to EPIC, which is the um, International Finance Corporation's, IFC is the private arm of the World Bank. They have a, a set of ethics guidelines for the health sector in low and middle income countries. So we're signatories and, and, and we follow that. Uh, also, the um, WHO has um, guidelines for um, ethical recruitment of health workers you know, regionally and globally, and, and we comply with that. We also have to make sure that we do uh, due diligence with all of our partners to make sure that you know that they are being ethical. But you know, in a lot of low and middle income countries, it's a regulatory wild west. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we were advising Somalia, we, we said it's helpful to say what's legal and also what's not legal. Uh, for example, in many um, uh, low and middle income countries, the regulation is silent on telemedicine. I mean, is it even legal? You know, who can do it? Can a nurse provide telemedicine? Can a physician provide telemedicine? What type of care can they Provide what type of medicines can be prescribed via uh, telemedicine? Can you uh, prescribe antibiotics? Can you prescribe, you know, controlled medicines, which would be your like your opioids or uh, like like your amphetamines for ADHD? Uh, and, and so that that regulatory gray area um, makes it a, a big big challenge. And so you you really have to know your partners well. And you really have to, um, to agree on a way forward. You know, the New York Times did an article about a year ago about how all the new um, uh, like telemedicine companies in the U.S. were having a hard time finding chief medical officers because they were having a hard time finding physicians with the, the ethical flexibility that they, they needed because, you know, tech has this, you know, go fast, you know, break things. You can't break things in medicine. That doesn't, you know, that, <laughs> you, get, you get your medical license revoked if you break things. You have to follow the law in, in medicine. And so we're seeing these two worlds, you know, tech, you know, which go fast, break things, and, and medicine first do no harm. And, and this collision, um, I think, is going to bring us even more challenges in the future.
2: Do you think the influence of big tech on medicine will ultimately be profoundly positive? Because you and I have been around long enough when the vision of uh, electronic health records was so high and this is going to change everything. And as you pointed out, there were many drawbacks of them as well as uh, steps forward. Is it just a matter of time before a successful marriage of these two cultures is developed?
1: I think eventually, uh, you know, sort of tech... And I just mean tech from like a data computer point of view. I don't mean like um, you know tech like new forms of, of drugs and things like that. I think eventually you know it, it will make it easier. you know I, I see my my relatives who can do you know EKGs at home now or diagnose um, atrial fibrillation at at home now um, or uh, relatives with diabetics who, you know, can map their their glucose and, and determine you know how they need to change their diet, and that is so powerful. Um, but you know, of course, it can be abused. Uh, in the U.S., you know, we've had this uh, you know renewed debate on abortion, and um, a lot of women became very concerned because they had been entering their menstrual cycles into apps, and you could quite easily see how. If a woman was having menstruation and then stopped and then started again, if if you, you know, from a big data point of view, you gather enough of those and look at them, you will find some women who had a, you know, an elective abortion. And, you know, so I certainly saw lots of messages. If you live in one of these states, you know, delete these apps. Um, And I mean, that's a concern. Um, And and I think we're going to see lots of that that type of thing uh, going on.
0: Uh I see that you know you you have a, you have a master's degree in history and philosophy of science uh and you know so I would ask you as a, you know on a personal note as a medical ethicist how do you see the ethical implement implications of using ai and open medical data in health workforce strengthening
1: I think that certainly one of the most important things is going to be informed consent that, that people understand the, the software that's being used in their care, but that's gonna become increasingly difficult. And who reads those informed consents anyway? You know? <laughs> in the US, even when you just see your primary physician, you get like five pages of you know, small font um, you know, for your consent. Um, so people have to, patients have to be able to go in aware of well, what's gonna happen with their data, of how is, you know, big data being used in their care. So it's on on both sides. So that informed consent is going to be vital. Um, Certainly helping health workers, you know, understand uh, what they can do, you know, what they can't do, where that bright line is, um, you know, how they have to be able to talk with patients about these. Um, And and then, as I mentioned before, governments need to get that, that regulation. Um, those are the um, the big challenges because um, you, you know medicine always pushes towards the the possible not necessarily towards the the good uh, actually when I got my um, my master's um, I did it on um, the ethics of fetal tissue research because uh, when I was at, at Cambridge it was at the time in UK that there was a public argument over, could they use the eggs harvested from aborted female fetuses? They use that in medical research. And and so I did all my analysis and everything. And I finally just decided, you know, it's going to follow the money. If someone wants to be able to do it for some, uh, you know, for some business case that they can make money, um, they will. And that's exactly what's been done. And in fact, in UK is the UK is the first country that has had these, uh, you know, three parent children, um, you know, uh, with the families with the mitochondrial um, uh, mutations. So, and we, we also in China, we saw the, um, you know, the birth of um, the, the children who had been genetically uh, manipulated and cloned. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, what I predicted has uh, has come about.
2: Is that entirely fair? Because after all, in China, the person who did that is now in prison because the Chinese authorities said you shouldn't have done this.
1: Yes, but all the other things that that I predicted are are, are coming about too, and and we do see researchers looking for countries where they can do this research. Um, you know a lot of cancer, not a lot, there are a number of cancer patients in the U.S. who go to Mexico to seek treatments. And I'm not not talking about like um, snake oil treatments, but um, treatments that might be helpful, but the, you know, the research just isn't there for the FDA to, to approve it. So in fact, um, I knew a, a fellow physician who, who, um, had I, I believe a lymphoma and, and and went to to Mexico to uh, receive some of the antibody therapy because it had not been uh, approved in the U.S. yet and, and those those clinics are located at the border for the U.S. market because you know Mexico just does not regulate you know or does not enforce its regulations in the way the U.S. does if those clinics you know move two miles over the border those people would be in jail um, so so. You know, once again, if there's a, a monetary demand for it, an effective demand for it, uh, I think for better or worse, it's going to happen.
2: That's an argument to accelerate the cures and treatments that do have good evidence and to clamp down harder quickly internationally on the ones that are likely to harm. Because otherwise, there will be mistrust. Otherwise, what we talked about earlier, people will say, oh, these companies are only in this for the money. They're not really offering me the best treatments and there will be this uh, closing of minds, whereas to get the best potential, we have to manage the trust actively, in my view.
1: It's it's a huge challenge, and also one thing I think we're going to see is as much healthcare inequality as we see now, we're going to see greater inequality in the future. So, so right now it's that, you know, I can afford a malaria drug and, and you can't. Um, but pretty soon it's going to be, I can afford to have, you know, a new heart made from my stem cells and, and you can't. When my two children were born, I banked their cord blood cells or their, their stem cells. And so, um, so those are pluripotent cells that are the exact same genetic material as them. So, you know, we could make a new child. Um, from those. Um, so I'm very concerned about with this widening inequality, what that is going to mean in society. And certainly, um, you know, governments that are pursuing universal health care, it's been an argument, universal health care of what? Primary care? Um, you know, a heart transplant? Uh, you know, what, what level of care should be universally available? Uh, because at some point we're going to outprice ourselves. In fact, I think it, many countries already have outpriced ourselves, that we cannot afford to give everyone the type of care that they would want. And by type of care, I mean certain procedures and and, and treatments that, uh, you know, once again, with the, the new biologics for cancer treatment, um, the um, the antibodies, highly effective, but extremely expensive because in many cases they have to be made for that person this is that precision medic medicine and that what you know they would take your cells and make it for you and if i had the same disease they would make my cells and make them for me um so the the expense is, is just astronomical and, and there's just no way that every country is going to be able to afford that uh, for everyone. I'm, I'm concerned about the ethical risks of that and, and the, the societal, societal disruption uh, of risks of that.
2: It was a remarkable story in the UK. There was this vast amount of money spent, but the child in question seemed to be cured from something that previously would have been a death sentence. So it's, it's complicated.
1: Yeah. But did they really need to have a child? Why didn't they adopt, you know, some of the thousands of children who need families you know, and and that millions of dollars could have been, you know, spent on, you know, lifting up, you know, poor children in in hundreds of communities. I just to be, you know, kind of to be devil devil's advocate there. uh, You know, it's not a right to to be able to have a child if you have a, a mutation that's not compatible with life. Um, So, but these are very, very tricky things and and very emotionally, um, you know, emotionally reactive. There's no doubt about that.
2: And the best solution in a sense is to hurry up and reduce the costs of as many treatments as possible by using data more intelligently, by getting AI, understanding healthcare capabilities, healthcare worker capabilities, and understanding the actual complicated biological pathways. So... We need to figure out a way of accelerating the use of open medical data so that some of these very horrible, uh, challenging uh, ethical questions become uh, easier.
1: Now, you know, I, I believe that technology is value neutral. That means it's not the technology itself. It's what you do with it. So, you know, a gun can be used to save a life, you know, protecting you from a grizzly bear, or it can be used to, to take a life. It's it's, it's value neutral. It's, it's how it's used. And it's really the same with the the AI and, and uh, open medical data. How is it going to be used? I mean, there are enough... Um, you know, uh, science fiction horror stories about, um, you know, people having their DNA stolen or, you know, being tracked and traced uh, like that. And, you know, these things really are possibilities. Um, and, um, you know, I, I mean, once again, I think that's why that the governments really have to, you know, to take the lead on this. I, I think it will be very difficult for, uh, for, for citizens to be able to, to push on this, but hopefully, uh, hopefully some, some folks will
2: as you said, it's not just a future worry, there is already people uninstalling apps for monitoring menstrual cycles in uh, so-called advanced uh, developed countries. Yes, exactly.
0: Looking ahead, what do you see as the future opportunities and challenges in leveraging AI and open medical data to address health uh, workforce gaps? Uh, and, and specifically, how does Corfus, uh Health plan to stay at the forefront of these advancements?
1: Well, for the future, certainly the, the sky's the limit. Um, I, I think that we will enable people to take better care of their health. Uh, you know, the first, uh, the first line of health worker is self-care. Uh, and in fact, WHO now has this whole new line of work on self-care. And, and so we're going to have much better apps, devices to, to help us all, not only prevent disease, but maximize health, maximize, you know, the, the lifespan the, the, or the healthy lifespan. Um, some people call it the health span. Uh, so, so that's going to be important. You know, we probably are maybe 50 to 100 years away from like the Star Trek scanner thing, <laughs> but I mean, I think that that eventually will come. Uh, but, um, you know, in the meantime, it's going to be about getting, you know, higher quality, more cost-effective care, uh, to, to more people. Uh, you know, there's that saying the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And I, I think that's true. So I think we're going to see, uh, you know, just more of a lot of what we, we have, um, we know chat GPT, I think when they first had it, tried to, to pass the medical boards in January, I think it, it passed, but like in the bottom 10%, 10%. 10%. And then they had it take it last month and it passed in the top 10%. So, you know, I, I really, as I said, I don't see this as replacing health workers. I see it as augmenting them, augmenting patients, augmenting health workers, and just making things better and freeing us all up to, you know, pursue other interests, whether they're in healthcare or, or outside of, of healthcare
0: and on a on a final note since we've talked about legal uh even philosophical ethical and moral issues are there any platforms that that you know that's that you know provide this kind of conversation regarding ai and healthcare and what is your opinion on as a, as a contributor for the u.n how do you think the u.n performs in this uh in this regard
1: yeah there certainly are a, a number of different uh platforms and i think that um and most of them are, are focused on North America and Europe. So I do think that, that where the, the yuan has really brought an extra value is, is looking at low and middle income countries, you know, what's going on in Latin America, Africa, Asia, uh, the Middle East, because um, these are countries that can leapfrog. Like they, they leapfrogged telephone poles, right? You know, they, you know, and a lot of them are now leap, you know, and went straight to mobile and now they're leapfrogging uh, electricity wires and they'll go straight to solar um, and they won't have to build that infrastructure. And we all know at Europe and North America overbuilt hospitals. I think they'll leapfrog hospitals because you'll get your care at home or you'll get your care in a community medical center rather than, you know, a five-story hospital, so, so I, I think that the, the yuan, by, by bringing uh, the developing world into that conversation, uh, I think that's playing a very important role. And also it's where, you know, in low and middle income countries is where people are more vulnerable for a number of different um, different reasons. I remember a, a friend of mine was doing some research and the, the, the ethics review board was making... Uh, People sign consent forms. He's like, these people can't even read. Like, what well, you know? <laughs> and and, and ha- so, how do you consent someone who, who doesn't read even in their own language? And, and it, it, you know, there's a, there are all these complexities and risks. Um, and you know, if if something goes wrong to someone in the UK, health wise, economic wise, they have safety nets. But in a lot of low and middle income countries, if something goes wrong there's uh, i mean other than the extended family there's not they're not government safety nets um to help people so there's in a way a much greater risk on the downside
2: i did wonder about your experience studying long covid kate because this is a very practical issue we've discussed lots of practical issues some a bit abstractly but this seems to be a burning issue which you've looked at that we don't have enough understanding of this and so many people are Having their lives turned upside down for several years due to lack of data, frankly.
1: And you know, with my reporting on COVID, I really always tried to bring long COVID to the front because people were always understandably focusing on, on acute COVID because that's where people were dying. And, and, you know, and that's what gets people's attention. But for every person with acute COVID, if severe acute COVID, you might have 10 or 20 with debilitating long COVID. So, so from both a human suffering as well as a financial perspective, the, the burden of disease that COVID has put on our societies. Is going to be far more with long COVID than with um, w- with the acute COVID. That you know, the people who who now you know can't go up a flight of stairs without huffing and puffing. The the people who had heart damage and and, and can't run anymore. It, it's yes, it's a it's a huge issue, and it, it's just we've moved on to the next thing. We've moved on to the global economic crisis and the the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And and so nobody has the time for long COVID anymore. But yes, we desperately need um, uh, treatments and desperately need to to better understand both the autoimmune um, uh, nature of that disease as well as this continuing micro-clotting that seems to be occurring. Uh, But yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. I'm glad you mentioned that.
0: Thank you for listening to the Delta Dialogue. This episode is brought to you by the UN, a tech community focused on artificial intelligence in healthcare, machine learning, and related disciplines. I am Amir Mustafa, and see you next time.